All right, well, let's. Uh, this is episode 50 of Utah in the Weeds. My name is Chris Hollifield. And I'm Tim Pickett. Congratulations, Chris, on making it to episode 50. Episode 50. Yeah, I mean, I just, every time we record lately, we've had the year anniversary, and now we're having episode 50, and we've had, and today's guest is Rich Oborn, the, the head of the Department of Health, the Utah Medical Cannabis Program for the Department of Health. And here we are talking to him for the second time. Which is perfect for episode 50. Right? Yeah. And uh, we've been in this program for a whole year. There's just so many things that are seem like they're getting better. Well, and we talk about that in this episode, some of the, the changes with the laws. Yeah, a lot this is of a good big, information. Listen to the whole yeah. thing. It gets a little long. It but. does. This is a long episode, but I think it's worth it. This is the legislative update, basically, for what's going to change in the in the Utah Cannabis Program. For patients, for providers, for pharmacies, and there's a lot of little tweaks that have, that were made over the session. And what I enjoyed talking with Rich here, Tim, is there was a lot of things that I was kind of first like, oh, I don't like that, but then with some clarification, I was like, well, that's not really that bad of a law, really. Right. The he does bring it. Uh, he brings some some context. Yeah. yeah. To I'm some like, of okay, these changes. That makes sense. Which I think is good. You know, I mean, he's he's a reasonable. He runs a reasonable department, and the the Department of Health has been extremely helpful for patients. And um, anyway, this is a good episode. I, I encourage people to listen all the way to the end because there's there's good things all the way right up until the end. Listen to the end. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and whatever podcast player. And then utahmarijuana.org slash podcast is where you can get all the other podcasts. That's right. And we're going to put a summary of this podcast on utahmarijuana.org slash podcast. If you looked for this episode, episode 50, uh, you'll have a link to a blog post. We'll put it up and we'll run through those ep- through those uh, those legislative changes if you want to find out more. Or follow along while yep. we're talking. Exactly. Right there. Go to the website. Boom. Follow along. And uh, that way you guys can be up to date and find out you know what's going on because it's important as medical cannabis users to stay up to date on all the laws. I think especially because this is still federally illegal, you really want to be, you want to pay attention. There's information about the controlled substance database. We talk about that towards the end. And I think that's one of the big things that patients need to pay attention to. Let's get into this conversation with Rich Oborn. All right, guys, here we go. So there's 24,000 Patients in Utah, cannabis patients, active registered uh, patients in the state of Utah, twenty four thousand yeah. over twenty four thousand. So we're working on twenty five. It's it increases every day the number of active patients in the program. And didn't you expect what six thousand? <laughs> no, uh, there. I, I think it's important to focus on the fact that when we projected things, there yeah. are certain uh, time frames within okay. which we thought we would have right and and. 6,000 was the amount of patients that we thought we'd have between, uh, uh, by July 2020. Um, Got it. Right? Because March 2020 is when the program rolled out. Yeah. Uh-huh. And 6,000 sounds like that That number is, that's. Something like, I remember somebody was saying that yeah, somewhere. And I, I, and I had read, you know, 16,000 the first 12 months based on some Arizona right. numbers. Right. And that something was Something like that. And it was all based upon what other states had experienced. Sure. Um, because that's the best uh, data we had, right? But what we've experienced is a growth rate that has been higher than has been seen in other states, which is great um, for, for the program, for patients. Um, we, we didn't expect that our growth rate would be 
bigger than what other states had at the very beginning. And it took time to get there. But once uh, we adjusted and, and moved forward, we really saw those numbers increase, especially at the beginning of the year, or actually at the end of 2020, when everybody started to hear that recommendation letters were going to expire and they had to be a registered patient with the Department of Health in order to purchase product. So, um, yeah, there's so many factors that impact, but here we are, um, over 24,000 patients. It's awesome. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's really, it's a good system, like in the making, right? Like it's still, there's still some kinks to work out and we're going to talk to, to you about that, you know, and go through some of these legislative changes and what, not only what's happened over the course of the year, but what we think will, will make the program better for patients over the course of 2021. Of course, you know, having access to more pharmacies was a huge deal in 2020 mm-hmm. and product. And maybe we should just go down kind of this list just to kind of keep it organized. But really we have this, you know, the legislature passed a, a 15th or they're going to allow a 15th retail location. Is that just going to be another pharmacy? Is it going to be something different, some type of hybrid? It'll be a brick and mortar 15th uh, pharmacy. And we're excited that it'll be dedicated to a rural area. Uh, it has to be in Daggett, Duchesne, Uinta, Sevier, Grand, San Juan, Emory, or Carbon County, Central Utah. Um, San Juan, I suppose, is also Southern Utah. It's a giant county. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I would say there's, there's some cities within those counties that are more frequented than other cities, more higher population like uh, Vernal or Price or Moab or Richfield. The applicants for those, for that 15th license, they'll propose a specific address um, that'll be in one of those cities. And um, we'll take a look at the strength of those applications and we'll compare them uh, with a point system that's fair and balanced. And so that just because one pharmacy may stick out from another in one category, it doesn't mean they're going to win at all. It, we got to be balanced in how we review. And um, I think we expect to get some really strong applicants that we're um, looking forward to reviewing. It's a request for proposal, an RFP that has to be submitted. So it has to go through what's called the Division of Purchasing with the state of Utah. And that ensures one reason why it's going through that process is that just ensures that the process will be fair and balanced and uh, that uh, the, there's a fair and balanced award system mm-hmm. for points as they go through that process. Because I'd imagine this is going to be pretty competitive. I mean, you're only issuing one more license. Right. There isn't really anything on the horizon that says Utah needs another four or five licenses for a little while. I mean, do you do you see that there's does Utah project the need for more than 15 for a while? Or is that even not a, not on the radar? I think what what we've focused on is we need to see what happens with the all of the 15 or once 14, they get going right, right. right. because we've got eight open right now. Uh, the next one to open will likely be uh, Beehive Pharmacy in Brigham City. Mm-hmm. And I heard about we'll that. And then we'll have uh, pharmacies open up in uh, places like uh, Springville and um, Columbia Care City goes and St. George and uh, yep. South Jordan. And those haven't opened yet. And so I think that those are critical 
factors that haven't fall, fallen yet that will help us learn more about the market and the need for potential additional locations. Um, the law already provides the Department of Health the ability to consult with the Department of Agriculture to determine if additional pharmacy locations are warranted. We don't have to go to the legislature for that. So anytime you could just be like, hey, we need a 16th pharmacy. Boom. Yes, but we need to establish criteria. Right. And we'll be working with the industry to establish that. That hasn't been established yet just because we know that all the pharmacies haven't opened yet, up yet. And uh, the past and year not, has they're been- they're not near to capacity, right? I mean, some of these places right. can do six or 700 transactions a day. Right. And there's nobody doing that many transactions a day yet. Right. And something also that's critical that has rolled out that not to the extent we need it to in order to understand the market better is home delivery. Uh, yes. There are some pharmacies that are much further along than others. Two are um, approved to do it, but uh, two of the 14. So right. you've got Wholesome who's been doing home delivery up from Bountiful. Right. And uh, I think Dragonfly. Yeah, they're doing they're, it They've opened yeah. it up too. But but that's not to say there isn't. Certainly Deseret has, has talked about doing home delivery and, and that's going to be a big deal. And that could expand the reach of these pharmacies into other areas. Sure. And decrease the need. What you're, what you're alluding to is that could decrease the need for additional licenses. Potentially, but something else we want to be uh, having a pulse on is the, the need for a, an individual to meet in person with a medical provider. And we want to, if they want that, if that's just their preference, then we want to consider that in deciding whether or not we approve a, an additional brick and mortar uh, to mm. be in some of these rural areas where they simply just don't have that option under f even 15. They have to drive over 100 miles in order to get that option to meet in person. They there's always this offer for counseling um, with a pharmacist that could happen uh, over the phone, you know, and that's being uh, taken advantage of um, already. And that could just expand even more. But for some people, they just prefer to meet in person. They want to be able to see that person, different approaches to getting uh, care as a patient. And it's important to respond to some of those demands if well, we see it in yeah. medicine too. I mean, telemedicine really took off during the pandemic, but the truth is there are patients who just want to come see you face to face. Right. And there are times when you really just need to see the person face to face and look them in the eyes and see how they're they're walking and how they're doing. And so, yeah, I mean, I can appreciate the the idea of, you know, needing potentially needing more spots. When you talk about the the pharmacies that are going to open now, the legislature adjusted the time frame, right? The 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 time to open. They did, did they give I, them a little leeway. We're more there? specific about what that time frame is. There was a little gap in the law previously, and and what the the SB one ninety two did is it set that deadline at June first, twenty twenty one, and the the prior law just had a little gap, so that was addressed by this this absolute deadline of, of June 1, 2021. And all of the pharmacies have confirmed that it's it's definitely um, a deadline they can meet, uh, those that haven't opened yet. Right. So we'll see St. George, Cedar City, uh, Springville, and um, uh, there's there's one I'm uh, I'm Well, I'm Cedar City's Bloom. So right. you've had, yeah, I mean, I've personally talked to Bloom. 
you know, they want to open. Of course, they want to open by end of April. Justice in St. George, I was actually down there and, you know, they they also want to open by April. They got a lot of work to do, those Columbia two places. Care in South Jordan. Oh, yes, Justice in Grown. South Jordan. That's Justice on right. 100, off of 106th or so, mm-hmm. where their location will be. So, and that'll be really good to have more locations. I, I just can't, I can't imagine, you know, being in Southern Utah and not having access to a location now. I think that's, that's tough. But also, you had, the legislature adjusted the, the rules for possessing cannabis. Was that to kind of cover? Talk to us a little bit about that. Was that to kind of cover that extension to June 1st? Yeah, that was the logic behind it is just to give patients, uh, I think, especially in, in those areas where they don't have as much access, the ability to continue to possess out-of-state product legally. In some cases, it's it's really important. Also, I think it's important to keep in mind that the supply and the variety of uh, products, I think, has has improved. We expect more improvement, as any new program would with medical cannabis. And I, I expected during the summer, it would have improved to a point where it's just not um, nearly as much of a problem as it has been in the past for supply and variety. Um, naturally, one of the frustrations from patients has been that there hasn't been the supply and variety. And from the companies, that's been a, one of their frustrations as well. And But everybody who knows cannabis knows that every program has started this way, and especially in a program that has started uh, as regulated as ours in the, in the type of uh, atmosphere that it's just had to grow in. Mm-hmm. So that additional time was was given, I believe, for for those reasons. Yeah. And I mean, it looks here like you can, so patients can possess out-of-state product within Utah as long as they're a medical patient and they have a card until June 30th of this year. That's if the products comply though with Utah. Right. So you ah, can't okay. bring in like THC drinks and stuff You've like that. You've never been able to do that. Well, that's what I'm saying. Right. So people listening, you know, you can't okay, just go yes. get you anything. Okay, can't just go get you can't go get uh, edibles. And I don't think and, a lot of people know that, Rich, cuz like I yeah, see a lot a of good, the Facebook groups online, I'm like, man, these people must not know the laws. You sure. cuz I'm just like, man. Yeah, yeah, it's important that people educate themselves and if they have questions to Talk to people they trust um, yeah. that know the law, like an attorney or just someone that works in the industry, right? Um, so they are aware of of those limitations of the type of products that they can possess. Even when you do purchase out of state, you need to I make mean, sure we that product have, complies. We even have a, a kind of a rule change within the system now, right? There's There's been uh, gelatinous cubes with sugar coating and evidently like the, the Department of Health with the industry is kind of adjusting things as they go. Do you, that specifically comes up on the Facebook groups and things like sure. that, right? The sugar coated gelatinous cubes. Right. That was something that was tracked by the Utah department of agriculture and food. And um, because they deal with the processors and cultivators, right. And, uh-huh. and as a department of health, the representative, I deal with the uh, specifically the pharmacies and what ends up at the pharmacy. Um, but I do know that the department of agriculture and food did um, see that happening, and they, I think, gave a deadline by which yep. the, the pharmacy would have to um, stop selling those type of products. They didn't say you have to stop this immediately. They gave them a time. They frame. just said, "Hey, this this doesn't really meet the what what the rules say." Right. 
as far as a gelatinous cube. And so I think that some of the products, I, I know I talked to Zion, they're, they're thinking about like individually wrapping every, every cube. And there'll be, there'll be things like that. I think that's kind of, me personally, I think, yeah, it's kind of silly, but. Might be you know, kind of nice to have an individual. It's like a wrap. starburst or something, right? Yeah. Right. The, and they wrap those. And the other yeah. thing about those um, gelatinous cubes is if they're all together, they tend to melt together. Exactly. exactly. Right? So you got to, I mean, one way or the other, you got to keep them separated. Yeah. What else we got on this list here? I mean, I got a, got a bunch of stuff here. Man, we got a lot. The collection of QMP medical clinic fee data. Oh, yeah. this And this involves me. So this is... This healthcare transparency idea that we need to we need to be as transparent as possible, and we're going to supply the we're going to supply the 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 government the state government with fee data. It, what's the reasoning behind this? It's something similar to what happens with the all payers claims database, and if you know something about Medicare. Um, you, you you might know that there's certain types of facilities that have to report what their fees are um, to the Department of Health um, already in the all player claims database. Those fees are collected, and it's a comp- it's a complex system. It, it's not as simple as just collecting a fee. There's d- different things that depend that um, impact what that looks like. But the state auditor's office today, if you go there, you'll find that there's this healthcare transparency tool that exists already um, for Medicare purposes for uh, medical providers that where they have to report this, different types of facilities already do this for those other purposes. And it's already a tool that's used by patients, if they know about it, to help them decide where to go get service. Now, it, it is, I think- Is this uh, something uh, like, okay, look, I'm going to go get a hip replaced. And so, right. you know, at, at this hospital- I can look up on the database and I can kind of figure out that it's going to cost about $25,000. But if I go to this other hospital, then the fees end up being, you know, $42,000. Sure. And that's kind of the idea. Right. So Senator Escamilla, what she wanted to do is to reflect um, that type of a transparency tool for medical cannabis patients specifically. And I think one of the issues that we found early in the program is naturally there's a limited supply or a limited number of qualified medical providers. Many of those choose to not have their information posted publicly. They would rather just continue to meet with their current patients and that's their choice. So their name doesn't appear on our website. You wouldn't really know that they provide medical cannabis recommendations as a service unless you're one of their current patients. Maybe they're on a, an oncologist or a neurologist, right? Not accepting they have that new specialty, patients, right? But but they'll do medical cannabis recommendations in the course of their own practice, right? So those type of providers aren't required to post what their prices are for purposes of medical cannabis uh, evaluations. The type of providers that are required and the type of medical clinics that uh, would need to make sure that their providers report would be those that advertise publicly, like your medical clinic, right. that they do provide medical cannabis evaluations. And there has been some concern that of some of the prices that are charged because the number of those type of medical clinics is limited at the beginning of the program. There's a wide variety of prices that are charged. And in some cases, the legislature believed that they were charging too much. 
rather than saying you cannot charge over a certain price, the legislature says, okay, free market, you do this, but we will require that if you advertise that you provide medical cannabis evaluations, that you communicate those to the Department of Health, who will ensure that those prices that you report are posted on a health transparency tool online that a cannabis patient can use as a resource to confirm that um, the price that they would be charged. Right. Now, there's a lot of different factors that impact price. There is a lot of different factors. And it's a bigger picture than just that one little slice of uh, the price, right? right? Yep, that's right. And so I know you'd probably want to talk about that a little bit. Well, yeah, I I think that there is there is a lot and there are going to be of course there will be clinics that will lower their initial price and lower their initial uh the care they give the patient and unfortunately fortunately unfortunately that's part of the marketplace in all businesses and I think that hopefully patients the bottom line is hopefully patients will do their research on who they're going to see and they they can look at this tool and they can say, okay, you know what, I'm going to look at these places and I know what the prices are going to be, but then I'm going to dig in a little bit more and I'm going to find out a little bit more about the reviews and who's gone to see them. Are these people giving me the service that I am really paying for? That's really all my concern is. Uh, when it comes down to, you know, putting these prices online, because there are certainly going to be there and there are plenty of places out there that are just like they're the card mills that everybody doesn't like, you know, you're really paying for a recommendation at something like that. And with me, you know, you're paying for an evaluation, a lot of education, a lot of follow up, you you know, maybe you get what you pay for right. in a lot of places. So. Do I agree with the legislation in the way it is? Eh, no. But will we do it and will we go out of our way to make sure that patients know what they're getting? Absolutely. And in that case, you know, it is what it is. One thing I think is important for cardholders, patients out there to understand is that this isn't something that we are immediately requiring. We need time to set up the software and the what we call an API integration uh, to um, set up our software so it can connect with the state auditor's software. So I would expect that this will be rolled out in the fall. It's not something to expect immediately, but it, it, it's something that will change in the future that mm-hmm. I think will empower patients, but they need to just be aware that price shouldn't be the only factor and um, that, that they need to keep those other factors in mind that you mentioned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, when we talk about the um Oh yes, it's the ninety-day renewal and the and the uh, conditional card. These that seems are, like a good these thing, are though. huge things, but these are good things, though, right? Yeah, I think they're really good things. So, talk about the legislation surrounding this conditional card, this uh, provisional. They're calling it a provisional card. So, are we going back to the letter system? No, we are not going back to the recommendation letter system. So, thank you. Um, there <laughs> continues to be a requirement that to legally possess and to purchase product, you must be a registered medical cannabis card, active card holding individual. So you cannot possess or purchase product without a medical cannabis card that's been issued by the Department of Health. But one of the things we learned as we move forward in the program is that 
we believed we could trust the relationship between a provider and their patient. And as long as a provider made the clinical decision to certify the recommendation of a of someone to get a, of a medical cannabis card, as long as that was in place, that we could allow for a conditional card to be issued. And that that card, um, the purpose of it would be to give it's conditional because the final decision about the card hasn't been made, but it just gives the state time to ensure that an appropriate review has occurred on the state's end to ensure that everything is accurate and there's no fraud taking place on our um, that that would be evident in the online application. So this it allows that really patient to good. go and purchase, but we always have the right within that uh, time frame to take the card back to revoke it if we notice that there's something f- funny going on. Right. Um, Some box wasn't checked right. or the clinical documentation wasn't there. Something sure. was missing. But this, in my opinion, is just smart legislating uh, of a of actually and and I think that's I mean as rare as that sounds, right? That you that you get a government that is is doing something that is really smart. This is one of those things where you've seen 18,000 in 2020, you saw 18,000 applications come across the the Department of Health, the EVS system. And you can tell of those 18,000 or however many you did, how many were revoked or how many needed more information. And then you can make a good determination. Plus, you had the letter recommendation letter system that already we had gone through and we had we had kind of proven as a early system that we could evaluate patients, give them access to the product, they could go purchase it, and that turned out to be a pretty good like safe system. Not there was problems with that, but it was let's say safe. And now you've made a a change that continues that process in a really good way. I think it's it's great for patients. Because it was one of the big things in January and, and February that we were asked, you know, well, don't you do the recommendation, Tim? And we're like, well, yes, but then you got to wait, you know, and, and, you know, recently the Department of Health has been a little bit behind. You're caught up now, but it's great to have people be able to leave the office with that recommendation and go down to the pharmacy. How long will that take to implement? There's the... There's the question. I think we're looking at fall 2021 um, for that type of uh, the the lift that'll be to our software per, um, vendor that we're working with. So we're really excited about it. I think there one thing that's great about an online system is that it, it can it can be smart and it knows when a patient uh, by the information that's being provided by the provider and the patient it can make those automated decisions about who should get a card and who shouldn't, right? Mm -hmm. We're not pushing paper. We're able to prepare the system so it can automate some of that process like an e-script would in- Right, you're sending across the the recommendation just like an e-prescribed medication. Yes. And that's being verified by, you know, however many factors it is. They verify me. I verify the patient. They're already registered. Yeah, it seems like this is a good. Uh, this seems is going to be me, good yeah. for patients, right? Like Chris, I mean, wouldn't you think? Seems, now, yeah. will this happen? Do you think with renewals, if somebody expires, will they be able to 
renew their card and in, immediately be active? Is that that may be a detail mm-hmm. you don't know yet, but but it's same type of thing. Right, right. Same process for renewal. It'll be an automatic issuance of a conditional upon renewal. And then that individual, as soon as the provider, as soon as you do that certification, the system will read that and then issue a conditional card. And then we'll make sure that everything is on the back end like it should be. And then we'll then yeah, you'll be issue able to audit a, the... a second email with the card because all these cards are sent via email. We don't send one in the mail except for when people request it. If they don't have a printer or whatever, we help them out. But but um, that's not really part of the program. How often does that happen where people really need a physical card? Oh, I'd say p- people, they, we have probably every every two weeks, maybe three, yeah. where people just request that and, and that's fine. Um, yeah, we probably have three a month that come into clinic and want us to print it. So it right. happens. Right, right. You know, and that's, somebody will, somebody will have, card? yeah, we'll print the card. Laminate it too. Yeah, uh, but we need a laminator. No, so, we won't so laminate it for you. <laughs> I think one thing to focus on as we think about how this will benefit patients a little bit is that the 90-day period of the initial issuance and renewal cycle is gone in the new law. Okay, it'll take time for us to implement the software changes. Right, because right now the software automatically creates a 90-day. It's a 90-day. Day. That'll right? continue until the fall. Okay. Because uh, we need time for our software to... Uh, um, make those changes and, and changes. several other changes, including this one. But it'll benefit patients and providers because I think it'll honor the relationship that they have that's critical, that there continue to be a provider involved in the treatment, right? Mm-hmm. But rather than 90 days, it'll be six months uh, for that initial issuance. There's the conditional card that uh, is for 60 days, but then as long as the department does our part to ensure that everything's in there, then it'll be for six months. So there won't be the need for the um, you as a provider to meet with the patient after those initial 90 days again. It'll be a six-month period. I'm torn about this one, Rich. I'm torn about the 90-day going away. Yeah. I know it will save us a lot of work. And, and I know that it will save the patients a lot of headache a lot of patients, it will save a lot of headache. But there has been a very good relationship built, I think, on that. This is why I'm torn. There's been a, an opportunity for us to follow up with the patients at 90 days. And when you do a cash pay clinic or you do a, a clinic where patients are having to pay out of pocket, and then you don't charge for that 90-day renewal like we don't, um, it allowed us an opportunity to research how the patients are doing and things like that. And so, like I say, I like the idea of not having that. We're actually going to see the patient sooner than we would have before because right now we're seeing them in about eight months and we will be seeing them in about six, about five or six. Will the, you know, so we'll still be able to see them. It'll change that a little bit. So I think overall good, but yeah, I'm a little torn because I like getting that feedback from the patient sooner. Well, you can keep doing it. And I still, <laughs> As yeah, a I mean, we clinic, still, you yeah, can shorten say, the you time You can still period. do it if you yeah, want. And we have, and I think we'll find ways to, to follow up with patients and do that. But I think overall, it's going to be nice for the patients to have a little more clear, you know, you, you get your card 
your card's good for six months, your card's good for another six months, and then we can start to work on this, you know, whether or not a year is mm-hmm. good for the patient. Right. And that's kind of the idea behind this this change. Yes. Is that right? Another change that's uh, coming up is there's a prohibition against alteration or removal of a medical cannabis product label that came from the processor. I thought so, that was already. <laughs> right. So this was just clarifying that, that, that I think we wanted yeah. to make it really clear that. You're talking about the labels you get like when you go to the pharmacy. Uh-huh. With that, that That's on the actual out. product that yeah. you purchase. Okay. Right? So it's it's actually the label on the jar. Mm-hmm. So like right behind now from the there's processor. A, now yeah. there's a, a going to be a rule that says you can't remove that. Right. Why is it's that like a important? mattress label, right? Is that, that, the mattress that helps protect label? the patient if by chance they're pulled over by law enforcement. Law enforcement can track down that product to make sure that it was a legally purchased product. Also for recall, if there's a problem with the actual product and the patient experiences an adverse reaction, if you keep the label, it allows us to research how many other patients might have been impacted by that same product that had an issue, right? My, my question though is, is sometimes you might buy a few small ones and put in a big one, but into a big jar, right? You know, to store them. And then if you don't well, have yeah, any I mean, I packages, think like if you bought a couple of eighths and you had a little bigger yeah. jar. Yeah. You might throw them all together. Yeah. You got to be, so now you got to be careful. Maybe I mean, save you know, all your empty containers, I guess. Th- this law, what it does is it focuses on the alteration or removal of the actual label. Okay. okay. And Part of it, it has to do, I think it's applicable to more to cases where you're transporting product if you're okay. going back and forth to work with it. Or, I got you. I got right? you. Right? Because you. those are cases where you would actually potentially be pulled over. And if that becomes an issue, uh, cardholders need to know. They need to be able to identify themselves, show what they have. Show right. That if that becomes an issue, it may not. Yeah. But part of it is. is just to prepare a patient and a law enforcement representative to be able to, as a patient, protect themselves and as a law enforcement representative to um, investigate. It makes that process quicker. See, and that's why I like you on the podcast here, because you can kind of, you know, clarify things. That's right. right. I mean, that, it's because I think a lot of people are just going to look at that and be like, yeah, that's silly. You know, it, There's that's no reason behind that. But, but yeah, I mean, it makes, okay, yeah. These yeah. guys are thinking this through, right? Before they just willy-nilly change the rules. I want to talk about this one on here though. It's the one that says a pharmacy medical provider must review each medical cannabis transaction. So each time you purchase something at a pharmacy, you're going to have to have a pharmacist there to review it. Right. So already a medical cannabis pharmacy during all business hours has to have a pharmacist or they call it a pharmacy medical provider physically present. During all business hours. That's already a requirement in Utah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's in other states like Minnesota and Connecticut as well. So that's already been a requirement. But one thing, one critical role that a pharmacist in a retail pharmacy like a Walgreens plays is they are responsible uh, for any differences between a prescription and what the patient actually leaves the pharmacy with. A critical role that pharmacist plays is just being responsible for what's dispensed. That, that's the, yeah. the verb that's used to describe that responsibility in a regular retail pharmacy. Okay. So. And you're talking about at the end of the transaction, when I buy my amoxicillin, you know, the pharmacist, there's the, the pharmacy tech that does the whole thing. But mm-hmm. then at the end, the pharmacist comes up and grabs the medication and says, hey, 
I'm See, responsible I, I, I for this. I, I double check that. Never. Do you have any questions for me? And a lot of time you, you don't see how that uh, yeah. happens right there yeah. uh, exactly. But especially with controlled substances, you'd see how important that is uh, with uh, opiates and narcotics when, but before it's uh, dispensed to ensure that the patient is actually getting something that is consistent with the prescription. Okay. Sure. So that's what happens in a, in a regular retail pharmacy. Now we're going into a medical cannabis pharmacy that naturally has some differences in how things happen. But there are some things that the policymakers felt very strongly about. And one of those things is uh, if there is a recommendation from the qualified medical provider like Tim, and when they purchase a product with that recommendation, is that recommendation being followed? Are the dosing uh, guidelines or directions of use that have been communicated by Tim in our software being followed. Yeah. And the legislature wanted to emphasize the need to ensure that a pharmacist is involved in making sure that actually happens in a medical cannabis pharmacy, like it does in a retail pharmacy. The pharmacist is responsible to ensure that whatever is um, recommended as a dosing guideline is actually followed. And also, keep in mind that a qualified medical provider can choose to leave those dosing guidelines and directions of use up to the pharmacist at um, the medical cannabis pharmacy. Um, and that's so, even which more is, which so is good. now. Which, yeah, it is good, and 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 maybe even more so now with the with some of the modifications that we can talk about next. And I guess it'll take a little time for the pharmacists and the pharmacies to get this in place to where this is a little bit, this is smooth for the patients, right? Right. I kind of look at this particular rule as a doubling down. The legislature is kind of doubling down on the medical aspect of this program. Yeah. And in in their words, I think they are just emphasizing their original intent. They intend for a pharmacist to operate in a medical cannabis pharmacy, just as they do in a regular Walgreens retail pharmacy. Right. Just like they do in Connecticut and Minnesota. And they wanted to, to clarify that that is their intent in the law. So now it's very clear what their intent is. Mm-hmm. And now as a Department of Health, we are working with, uh, I was just speaking with one of the medical cannabis pharmacy pharmacists today about um, how to implement this. Right. And so I think um, we'll work out those uh, plans in the best way there's in the short term how it'll be implemented and in the long term. The long term, we'll have the software revised so it'll be able to um, make it really seamless and easy. The short term, that'll be a little bit more of a challenge, but in a retail pharmacy, it happens. So let's – yeah. Take that model and mirror it in a regular medical cannabis pharmacy uh, setting. When does that take effect? Is that taking effect more immediate? That's something that they'll have to, these pharmacies are going to have to abide by pretty soon, right? Yeah. So the governor actually still hasn't signed the the bill, um, either HB 170 or um, SB1. It's SB 170 and SB 192. That'll happen later this week. There's no reason why I believe he wouldn't sign these bills. Right. So they become effective upon the governor's signature. 
But as a regulatory agency, we're reasonable. We don't expect like a light switch for pharmacies to be able to implement things uh, upon uh, the flip <laughs> upon of a the switch, right. right? So actually we're having conversations with, with uh, pharmacies even today about how to implement things in the short term. And we, we don't have a specific date yet, but it's something that um, patients uh, I, I think should be aware of um, because what may begin to happen is that they may go in and experience where they want a certain product, but if the pharmacy medical provider, the pharmacist that's physically present there, uh, has a recommendation that doesn't quite match up with what the patient wants, then the, the pharmacy is obligated to limit their purchase to what has been recommended by either the qualified medical provider, or if there weren't any recommendations of, of dosing guidelines or directions of use, the recommendation of that a pharmacist at that uh, facility. So that is something that they need to keep in mind because they'll experience that it'll be happening more often, that there could be that difference. In most cases, I don't think it'll be an issue because I believe the pharmacies right now are ensuring that that happens. Mm -hmm. This just makes it more clear. It gave us some teeth in the law to educate the pharmacies about and it gave us the ability to require something in the um, in the process where a pharmacist would be required to show the Department of Health, here's evidence that I approved what that patient actually ended up with in the end, sure. that um, the pharmacy agent wasn't running the whole show until the end, that there was actually a pharmacist involved. Because after all, this is a medical-only program, and I think that's um, reflected in in th this emphasizing of the the need to dispense accurately and not just to, to sell whatever the patient wants. Right. So the law also changed and is now going to allow every medical provider with a controlled substance license to write recommendations for up to fifteen of their patients. Right. Right. And in this, they had to change. It looks like they had to change the 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 way that was done because those providers aren't going to be required to input the information into EVS. The pharmacy looks like they'll be the ones entering those patients. Is there? Uh, am I right about this? Yes. So with this rule, is this rule designed to kind of expand maybe rural access or access? How how did this come about? I think there's a few reasons uh, for this uh, amendment to the Medical Cannabis Act. One is, is that if I've been someone that is a patient that it's treated for chronic pain, and I really trust my provider, and man, chronic pain sure is messing up my life, why would I want to change my provider? Why would if I want I to go somewhere with, else, pay money, if I can stay right here? right. And um, I love the fee that they charge. They take right. my insurance, and it's convenient. It's 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 just down the road. Why would I want to drive a um, hundred miles to somebody else? And, right? and and then you know, if we role play this, I would say as the provider, really, I'm not somebody who wants to get involved in cannabis in a big way. Mm -hmm. But you know, I know you. You're a patient. It's probably reasonable you try cannabis. 
I don't know a lot about it. Now right. I'll write I'll write the recommendation. Yeah. So this law it gives the option to any physician, APRN, PA, or podiatrist. That was a oh yeah. A, that they're adding all podiatrists into right. the medical cannabis sect, which is a good idea. Right. right. They, they went to medical school. So as long as you are in one of those <laughs> licensed groups, <laughs> and as long as you have a controlled substance license, um, then you could participate in in recommending ordering the pharmacy to help your patient get a medical cannabis card. You're essentially writing an order for the pharmacy. You may you you clarify that in a good way, mm-hmm. right? You're essentially writing an order that the pharmacy help this patient get a card, get a recommendation and work through that process. Yes. So, what's critical is that the pharmacy be prepared to accept that order. Now, there's certain information that appears on a prescription for a controlled substance. Sure. Right? The name of the doctor, um, their um, controlled substance license number, their professional license number. One thing in addition that these orders will need to include is the um, medical condition because that will need to be entered into um, the electronic verification system that represents um, the, the pharmacy kind of works as an agent of the of the physician. Um, the physician really doesn't want to work with the electronic verification system. So they just authorize the pharmacy agent or, or pharmacist at this particular pharmacy to act as their agent in entering this inf- critical information into the software database that then uh, triggers the issuance of a medical cannabis card. Uh, to the patient. So it would make it so I could just stick with my provider as long as that provider agrees uh, to uh, make that recommendation for me. The provider will have to do a little bit of education on the pharmacies and the pharmacies will be able to set up their own ways for that order to be communicated either electronically or on paper. If it's on paper, um, then there will need to be um, a verifying of that, um, actually the legitimacy of that order directly with the medical clinic or provider that submitted the paper order. So th- that's this, how it'll work. This seems like it's going to be another one of those kind of upgrades and modifications in the EVS system to change, to create a new role, so to speak, Yes, as the as the provider, a tier two provider, let's say, or right. something like that, right? right? Somebody with only 15 of these and and you've got to follow them a little more. Is it going to be more work for the Department of Health for these types of, you know, in, in this system with these types of patients? Do you foresee that this will be more work for the Department of Health? Yes, not an enormous amount of work, but there's some additional um, oversight that we'll need to create. One thing that's critical is that we set up a a software and a database that is able to do a lot of the work for us, right? Mm -hmm. If we can trust it to set certain rules and to allow us to go and audit the software, then great. Let's automate things to make things as easy as possible, right? Right. So that's critical. And I want to emphasize this is a a good example of something that uh, will not be rolled out really soon. The limited medical provider uh, role will be something that um, it'll require um, until the fall um, at the at the least to, for us to roll out. So 
again, all the a lot of these changes we've been talking about, they're not able to be actually implemented until we have the software to support it. But once we get that software in place, it'll, I think, provide um, some um, better options for patients, especially in this one case uh, where they're able to just stay with uh, their current provider, which I think is is um, the best type of circumstance as long as the provider feels comfortable recommending and ordering a pharmacy. Yeah, to do this yeah. to do this with them. I mean, I think you know, I give a little bit of my opinion here, and you know, I I hope people expect that a little bit from me at this point. I the more research I do about cannabis, and the more the more I learn about cannabis medicine, the more I see that. You know, having a relationship when it comes to true medical marijuana treatment, having a relationship with a medical provider, whether it be the pharmacy medical provider or a QMP or somebody who you trust, helping with dosing and delivery discussions, who knows the patient's condition well enough to know uh, and cannabis well enough to know what to recommend, the outcomes seem to be better when you have that relationship. So while I agree with increasing patient access with this modification of the bill, I hope that the providers who are going to do this are willing to learn enough about medical cannabis to move forward like in their own education, because I think the patients get more benefit when somebody knows what they're talking about right? When they're they're doing the dosing. And I think the pharmacists have a role to play there too. Of course, you know, I'm going to be biased and say, look, you know, I like our process, but this is an interesting experiment, I think, you know, and I've talked to Ray Ward about it too. And that idea of trying to bring these other providers into the fold of agreeing that this is medicine and it's okay. It's just another tool in the toolbox. It's a complicated tool right? It takes a while to get good at using it. But I agree, the more providers that we get involved and get more education, the more likely it is we're going to see cannabis used in the hospital. And that really is the end goal. So yeah, I, I, I like and dislike this, this one. And I think that it's going to be more work, obviously more work for the pharmacies, a little more work for the Department of Health. And we'll kind of see, we'll kind of have to see how this goes. Maybe we'll bring on uh, a doc in a year (laughs) who decided, Hey, I'm going to write one of these recommendations. And then all of a sudden realized, Oh my gosh, I I prescribe less. I prescribe less opioids. My patients (laughs) are coming off their benzos. Yeah. Like this is, it's actually working. And I think one thing a lot of us are looking forward to is when the federal government makes research more possible, when we can get more FDA approved drugs, that have gone through the traditional um, yes. uh, process and and where a traditional doctor would obviously trust that and they would be sold by uh, a regular retail pharmacy. But of course, the law is still what it is. It's still federally illegal. Um, if it has 0.3% or more THC, then um, it still is federally illegal. And you've got this patchwork of 35 states or so that yeah, like they have different programs. Right. And they're all they all have a little bit different programs all the way around, right? What else we got on this oh, list? Oh, the here? controlled substance database, the privacy. Boo. So it ended up, right? <laughs> the, 
The, okay, well, the people won in a lot of ways, and maybe we lost in this one. Did the so now the controlled substance database will it be patients' information is going to be going on to the controlled substance database? Will it be tied into the EVS system? Is that just how it's going to be built? How do, how is this going to actually work? Yeah, so there's there's a few different databases. There's what we call the EVS. That's the patient registration system. There's the ICS. That's the seed to sell software um, database. That's MJ Freeway. Yep, that's MJ Freeway. And then there's also in this um, particular to this amendment uh, to the law, um, the controlled substance database for Utah. Every state has a controlled substance database, right? Um, or they call it a prescription monitoring program in, in other states. And in about 15 other states that have uh, medical cannabis, they incorporate already medical cannabis product information. And legislators thought, hey, we want the providers that aren't participating in the program to be able to be aware of the medical cannabis um, products that are being purchased and whether or not their particular patient is a participant in the program. Okay, so basically somebody comes into the ER when I'm working a shift, I drug test the patient for for whatever, they have THC in the system, I look them up in the controlled substance database, they don't have, they, they're not registered. Then I could essentially tell that patient's not a member of the program and mm-hmm. they're using, they're essentially using it illegally. Is that part of this? That's one I mean, it part of it, right? Part of it. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of an of it. it's, it's kind of an example. Your I don't lens, think that is right through my lens because yeah, right. I work. I still work some in the ER, right. and I'm trying to imagine, you know, how we're going to use this, and I can see exactly. But what how good the would it be? I, I mean, so what if they're, they're using it illegally? It. And that, I mean, what are you going to do? Throw them in jail in that case, or why? What would that? No, what I just good think would that do because my experience is patients are discriminated against when they use marijuana products. Sure, and that's just. I mean, that's just my experience. I, I'm, I would guess that that would be borne out by some type of of studies or research. But you know, when somebody comes in and and some uh, a provider has a bias against marijuana cannabis use in general, this is you know, drug screening them is a way to discriminate essentially. Yeah. And so I don't want that. It was one of the arguments against using the you know, putting this data into the controlled substance database. However, there are some, you know, being able to see that a, that a patient uh, comes up THC positive and is in the controlled substance database. If I'm a provider that doesn't have a QMP license, now I've protected the patient from discrimination. So as much as I just made an argument against, I'm making an argument for the patient in this case, because now the patient is actually protected and they can say, well, I prove it. I, here's my, I'm in the CSD and I came up positive. Well, it's no wonder. Right. So another, I'd say, advantage of this and one reason why I, I think legislators were so strongly um, uh, supportive of it uh, was because this will allow a, let, let's say I go to my chronic pain physician isn't interested at all in in recommending medical cannabis. So I go to a medical clinic that's separate to get a recommendation for my medical cannabis. This initial provider that was treating me for my chronic pain, if I continue to go to that provider, that provider would be able to see 
that indeed, oh, okay, I see you're a, a legal patient in Utah's program, and I can see what products you're purchasing. Interesting. I can see your frequency uh, as well of purchasing A, B, and C products. And I think it'll give that provider a complete picture of how that patient is treating their chronic pain, has chosen to treat their chronic pain that they may not otherwise have. This is objective data that I'm interested in because we have had a number of patients who Although most pain providers do um, urine tests pretty frequently, um, we've had a number of patients that have come through to us where they'll get, you know, they'll they'll qualify certainly, and they want to reduce their opioid use, and they'll start using medical cannabis, but they are afraid of being cut off from their provider. So I can see this working a little bit of both ways. I think the important thing with this one is that if you are a medical cannabis patient and you're listening to this and you have a pain contract with a pain provider, you need to be aware when this takes effect that this is going to be the source of truth for the providers. And they will be able to see all of the controlled substances that you're using, which is what, you know, we we check the controlled substance database when patients come in for medical cannabis. That's a requirement by the statute. Um, so we get all the truth, but we also don't, you know, we don't broadcast that back to whoever. If the patient requests that that information doesn't go back to their provider, then it doesn't go back there. But now that will be available. Right. And so I think one factor is just thinking about the need for continuity of care. Yep. And as if I were a physician, I'd be able to ensure that I'm aware of the all the controlled substances, including those that are federally illegal, like medical cannabis. Um, that they're taking. Now, if they're buying off the black market, you wouldn't see that, of course. You could be able to see that, oh, this patient is a medical cannabis card holder. Their card is active, but nothing's showing up. Got it. And that would um, that may tell um, the story of uh, if the patient's using, then they're probably buying off the black market, especially after uh, July 2021 when it's illegal to possess um, product. Um, what do you think about all state. this, Chris? As somebody who's outside of the outside of this, like, what do you think? You think this is just flat an invasion of privacy, or you think there's this some particular benefit? thing? Yeah, this particular. Well, thing. my first thought was invasion of privacy, but my after discussing it and after hearing some of these other angles, I'm like, okay, that makes sense. I mean, especially if you kind of want to, you know, regulate it a little bit and keep an eye on things. I think it's. I think it could be a good thing, but it could also be a. Uh, I don't know if I'd say a bad thing, but it could be. It could cause some. This is going to cause some anxiety yeah, for certain people, yeah. right? And and it's going to be. It, I guess it just comes down to how it's used, right? It really depends on the provider, the type of relationship you have with the patient. You know, it it encourages certainly honesty. It definitely should encourage honesty between the provider, the patient, and you know, and what and what is happening. And I think that as we move this movement of deprescribing, you know, if you, I don't know if you guys have seen this hashtag no, around, no. but it is a growing movement that really we've started to become a big part of this deprescribing movement and using cannabis as a tool to, to deprescribe of like yep, opiates, opioids and, and benzos, gabapentin, Ambien, these things that just treat symptoms, Yeah, right? They don't treat disease. 
They just treat symptoms. And cannabis is similar, but but may have less long-term negative side effects. And so this controlled substance database in that sense could help. I just don't like being on picture. any databases, you know, so the thought of, of, of putting people on that, you know what I mean? Like the right. less, the, le- the less, but at the same the time, it's kind of like, there. well, you know, it is what it is. The EBS system, I mean, already has, I guess all the patient's information too. So, I mean, the, the information's out there. Right. Yeah. I, I'd say that just an additional advantage to think about is just um, the ability uh, for the provider to do research. You got, we, we've got one of the best world-class medical institutions here in the state of the uh, state of Utah at the university yeah. of Utah. Right. So they want to do research and they want to know what's the impact on use of medical cannabis on opiate use. So we've got data that tracks both for specific people that can be protected and kept, be kept confidential. But there's ways uh, with this connection to protect that data, but at the same time, use it for research that's legitimate, right? And so that's one thing that I, I think excites um, some of the individuals that were behind this is that it just allows them to do that research with the approval of what's called an institutional review board to ensure that patient confidentiality is always protected and there there aren't a bunch of files going around with patient names on it. Um, right, because essentially what you're saying is I could take, if I'm the University of Utah and I get permission, I could take data based on 2020 opioid prescriptions in Utah, and then I could take, once I get access to this, I could compare that to opioid prescriptions in 2022 now that we have cannabis and we're researching that. Right. And even look at specific records of unique identifying individuals and take a look at, oh, we noticed that this individual, as they used medical cannabis, um, their prescriptions uh, of other controlled substances for other controlled substances decreased. Now, there's research out there already. Some of it suggests that they decrease. Some of it suggests that uh, over time, it actually, that is not the case. It depends on um, a, a lot of different factors. And we need to be careful with making conclusions on the current research about that. But this just strengthens the ability for researchers uh, to be able to take a look at that over time and then to publish uh, studies in the future um, that Utah could really, um, you know, be, I, I think, a model for that, depending on how things move forward with the University of Utah and their interest in doing some of the research. The funding is tricky for that type of research. That's quality uh, research where they have to spend a lot of time crunching numbers and doing all that that I'm not the expert on. But it just requires funding. And it can't be federal funding because of the fact <laughs> right. that... Uh, right, because you, you're, you're, you're studying a federally illegal substance right. still. But you're yeah. studying a federally illegal substance in the best way you can, right? Which is yes. which is this. So the controlled substance database and the inclusion of the medical cannabis product information, I think, has that potential benefit. So overall, do you feel like the legislative session was a success for patients, for providers, for pharmacies, for the program? It definitely was. I think there were a few things where we, it, it, we have yet to see um, – and that's part of what the legislature's 
job is, is to say, okay, let's just see if this little tweak makes it a more pleasant experience for patients. Mm-hmm. I like that. Right? Right. Or makes it just a little easier for a provider to be involved in the continuity of care of their current patient. Right. What tools can we create? So policymakers approach it like that. I think it was um, – that's something that Senator Escamilla and Senator Vickers were looking at and Representative Ward and Representative Gibson as they sponsored these two bills. Now, um, there's uh, some other bills that impact the agriculture side of things um, a little bit more with hemp. And I know um, that that's something that some people listening may have interest in as well. Yeah. Um, but I- I'm not uh, an expert on those issues. But as far as the medical cannabis patients go, I, I think it was definitely progress. And as we learn more about the program, I think we'll be able to even make further tweaks. We are excited to continue to launch the program. Full launch hasn't happened yet. We still have these additional pharmacies that need to open. And we still have growers that need to grow. Right. There is a a ways to go still, right? Before full full implementation and, and we're to full capacity, we've got a ways to go. Right. But I feel like the legislature took some steps to set a firm foundation that we can build on and we'll see where some of these amendments will lead us. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I mean, I'm we excited. Can hope, I, I kind of am, you know, Rich has got me a little we excited. Try about new things. You know, I still think there wasn't any appetite for increasing patient caps this year and hopefully next year we can get around to that. Um, you know, that's, that'll be our big, I, hopefully they, they can understand that I think it's okay to have a couple of medical cannabis specialists around yeah. town. But, you know, other than that, I like this provisional card thing, I think is my favorite. Uh, you know, there's some real benefits to having the 90 day renewal go away and just make that much more straightforward for people. Um, so there are some things in there that I think are going to be good. My only complaint is when are we going to be able to start bringing prices down? But I guess that's not up to you guys, really. That's up to the pharmacies, I guess, of what they're charging. I think there were some efforts to decrease the prices, uh, the total cost of being a medical cannabis patient in Utah. One of those is- I'm talking before the medicine itself. Right. Yeah, yeah. And I think if you take the, the, the big picture and think about the total cost of being a medical cannabis patient, you can focus on the healthcare transparency tool. And you can also and you can also focus on increasing the number of pharmacies, right? right. By by making a fifteenth, that in general should decrease prices overall. Right. So when you look at the prices of a beginning medical cannabis program, I emphasize medical cannabis, medical only. If you compare us to Arizona or to Colorado. Or to Nevada, you're comparing apples to oranges. Yeah, because they're wreck and then completely right. different. Right. But ours is a medical program. So if you compare us to the other medical only programs, we're in the middle and we just barely started. So okay. you ain't seen nothing yet. That's kind of what I, I think about when I think about where we're at. A year has passed. It takes a while. It's like a big stone and gosh, it's slow at the first, right? Sure. Because it's doesn't have momentum. There's a few little th- things that are rough, but it yep. gets rolling and it gets rolling and it gets rolling. 
And at the same time, um, we're protecting patients. We're protecting uh, the public. Um, law enforcement becomes more aware of what's happening. I think the federal government, we're seeing more attention to medical cannabis and, and cannabis in general. But I think in Utah, for the foreseeable future, it's going to be medical only. Things get rolling. So just I, I hate to remind people about this, but it's true that you just sometimes have to be patient with some of the realistic factors that are in place. We we started moving a little bit quicker yeah. uh, toward, uh, I think, true progress in our medical only program during the last session when what we've talked about today actually begins to be implemented Mm -hmm. um, in 2021, that's when we'll be able to start to, I think, learn about the changes and see how this limited medical provider idea makes a difference to the controlled substance database. Are they actually using that as a tool? Are they, are people using the healthcare transparency tool, right? It just takes time for this um, big boulder to get moving more and more, but it, it'll get it, – it's moving quicker than it was before. Oh, I'm just grateful and, it's here, man. Right. And we still have oh, the yeah. goal of of ensuring that patients get access under the supervision of a qualified medical provider and a pharmacist at a pharmacy that is more educated and is in the niche of medical cannabis and understands what products interact with what medications, um, even better than uh, we were when we started the program. So that's the goal of Utah's program. We want to make sure those connections between the patient and provider stay there. And we're, we're moving forward. And, and I'm excited about the, the base that we've created and, and building on that. Mm, cool. I'm excited too. Yeah, any well, any other questions? I guess we covered them all on there. I mean, really, I, yeah, I, covered I'm sure. I'm sure I'll have questions well, for Richa. Like, and people can tomorrow. go to the EVS site, right? EVS. Well, they have the, um, the, website? the government website is medicalcannabis.utah.gov. Uh, medical and that would have all of this information too, or eventually, I guess it would all be up there. It will, right. So again, the, the governor still hasn't signed the bills sure. that we've talked about today, um, but that'll happen uh, here soon, we expect. And once those pass, we'll be able to update our website with – um, some fact sheets and some information where people can go um, uh, for some of the general high-level information. And um, it's just important to keep in mind these won't um, launch immediately. A lot of the changes we've talked about, um, it'll take us some time. But um, yeah, they can find more information at medicalcannabis.utah.gov. And we see our, our numbers uh, growing more and more. More providers are joining the program. Um, that number continues to increase, which is really healthy for our young program to see the number of providers continue to grow. Also, something that changed, I'll just end with, is that physician assistants no longer require... We had a huge, huge win for PAs in Utah becoming essentially independent practitioners, uh, equivalent to the nurse practitioner, you know, from an independent standpoint that, you know, after five years of practice... Um, you do not need a supervising physician any longer in that in that in our role as PAs. It is a mass massive win for for PAs practicing, and it's and and having the ability now to be a QMP without a supervising physician. That's a QMP is just an added benefit to that. But the but it was it's a big deal, right? And so who knows? I mean. 
the cost of getting service could decrease because of that um, to, to actual medical cannabis patients because of that change because that um, PA doesn't have to mm-hmm. have that supervising physician anymore um, because in the law, it, the former law, um, there was a requirement that that PA have a supervising physician who was also a qualified medical provider. Right. So Tim operated like that, but in the future, he won't yeah, have I don't, to. Yeah, I don't have to. Yeah, I mean, I, I caution all providers, please get medical cannabis uh, malpractice. It's really, really important before you go out and recommend any of this stuff, yeah. um, you know, and, and know what you're getting into. But if you've got questions about that and you're a provider, you're a PA out there, then reach out to me at utelmarijuana.org. I talk to PAs almost every, a couple of PAs and a couple of NPs every week, um, help people get connected with medical malpractice if they need it. Um, we have great contacts for that. I don't want to, you know, I mean, we can't take care of all the patients, but we would definitely be able to take care of a lot. Yeah. Um, but there, we definitely need more people who are actively involved in this program. Um, well, thanks for coming out, Rich. We're going to have, I'll put some, I'll put a fact sheet and a blog post together on utahmarijuana.org and at utahmarijuana.org slash podcast will be this episode. Chris posts those episodes every week. Every Friday. Every Friday at 420 in the morning. Every Friday, 420 comes in your podcast feed. Perfect. So make sure you're subscribed. And yeah, and we'll put this app. these yeah. legislative updates there so you can come there and you can get a highlight of all of these, these things that might affect you as a patient. I like that, um, yeah. And I, I think that'll be a good place for people to go get a synopsis before the state will race the state to get to get it up. <laughs> <laughs> Well, thank you so much. Yeah, go subscribe to the podcast. Uh, Follow us on Instagram. Stay safe out there, everybody.